go to Mum's, kill Phil, sorry, grab Liz, go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Yeah, boy! Stop me So one of the little unexpected things that I was not anticipating with all these shenanigans that we're going through now, and I say shenanigans and really mean precautions for our own safety, is I cannot listen to your show the same way that I used to listen to it. No longer in the grocery store giggling exactly. to yourself. Exactly. I, I, I can't like leisurely take my time going through the grocery store. Everybody's on edge. Everybody, you know, like you got to get in there and get out because there's people waiting. So I have to find another time and place to get you yahoos into my ears. Just do like me and just pour yourself a glass. It'll well, make it ever all go. Greetings and salutations. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to a matinee cast presentation of the Winchester Chronicles. This is dispatch number two. In case you missed what's happening around these parts, this is our mission statement. COVID-19 is affecting everybody's lives, including being able to go to the movies. That means that our usual discussions of cinematic passion and perspective need to wait for a while. However, it doesn't mean that the overall film discussion has to stop. So while we wait for the whole thing to blow over, we virtually sit here in our virtual Winchester pub and turn our attention to the best films of the decade gone by. Today, we bring on a dear friend of the show. He's a man that started out as a distant voice and then became a local friend. And now, thanks to isolation, he's a distant voice again. I could be further than you think. This is true. I was going to say, I could easily walk to your place from here, but like social distancing, you know? And as it happens, he was the last person I went to see a movie in a theater with when I caught The Invisible Man just three weeks ago, which holy hell does it out that feel like a year ago now. He is a podcasting legend, a man whose shenanigans you can find on Tump, the unnamed movie podcast, once from Kingston, Jamaica, and now here in Toronto, Canada. Andrew Robinson is here. How are you, Andrew Robinson? I've just started drinking, so I'm getting there. <laughs> Do you have like a time of the day that you start drinking? Like, are you drinking on the clock because nobody can see you? Are you madmening this shit? I mean, there are times where I am working and I have like a tall can with me. Actually, I've been on video work chats where I'm drinking my, my cider or my beer. So, you know. <laughs> but I mean, you're a coder. I got to figure that that's a hazard. I mean, one, you're okay, two, maybe, three, then you're into the region of writing just garbage. <laughs> That's great to know. On our second dispatch, the Winchester Chronicles will be discussing Inside Lewin Davis. We'll be turning the record over to play the other side, but first, we begin with Creature Comforts. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. One second, please. Please, Mr. Kennedy, up So in case you missed the first dispatch, creature comforts are uh, what we are distracting ourselves with in these uh, times of isolation. Uh, Mr. Robinson, what uh, what has been keeping you company uh, during these uh, this time of quarantine? 
there's one thing that we love to make jokes between ourselves about that's keeping me quite in fine, and that's games. Oh, um, yes. Video games, board games. Oh, Doom Eternal just came out. It's it's a time... Like, people have been making jokes on the internet that if there was ever a time to stay home and do nothing for video gamers right now. Right? <laughs> um, You've been preparing for this your whole life. <laughs> Oh, I just got a copy of Disco Elysium, which has started, and it, it's happened me in stitches. I'm still attempting to get as many achievements as possible in Civilization, which is, by the way, if anyone's out there, it's a fun game. It's an easy game to multitask with, because it's turn-based, so you just kind of go on and off. But also, I've been like digging into a lot of board games here. Okay. Um, like me and Renata together, just playing lots of board games and just going because we have to do something with that. <laughs> she's not a gamer, but she's like, I play board games, and we immediately went out and we bought like twenty board games, and we're just like rotating through them, and it's going like good game, bad game. Um, Blockus seems to be the biggest hit so far. What's that? Um, game? I don't know if you what's, know about it. Nope. What's the crux of that game? I mean, I listen. You are right now suggesting something really good because you're kind of like me, where it's just the two of you, and you're both working from home. So by the time he gets to dinner time, it's like, so how was your day? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, okay, tell me about blockers. Block us. It's a it's a puzzle like strategic game. So it's turn based. Um, they give you lots of lots of um, shapes that are kind of like Tetris shapes. Okay. Some of them a little wonky. Um, and you have like this this board, and you everybody puts down a, a piece every turn, and you have to like connect your colors by corners. And basically, your the object of the game is to play out as many of your pieces as possible um, on the board as you're taking up space and you're literally blocking people from playing more and more. So it's a fun, like strategic playing game that is amazing. I've, I've, I posted a picture of it on Instagram and, um, Kurt commented to say, you know, that I'm being a, a youngster here and we should try the triangle version. There's apparently a triangled version of it and I need to find that. So, Lots of board games going on over here as my creature comfort. <laughs> I, I was going to say, the funny thing is, as you started to describe this game, I was thinking to myself, that seems really familiar. I wonder where I saw it. And then it, it hit me in the middle of your sentence. I'm like, I saw it on your bloody Instagram. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> please, you, you know, you mentioned the video games, though. Please tell me you weren't one of those idiots who went and, like, lined up for, for a game Line. to buy it on day of release. No, 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 no. We're, we're in the year of 2020. I can download all the games legally and pay for it without ever leaving my house. Okay. Why would I line up anywhere? I don't know. Um, I don't, welcome I, I don't to the know world of work. and digital libraries. Right? If, if the game is not working properly, do you still blow on the cartridge? <laughs> I just slap my computer and I don't do that because my computer's perfect. I, I do love that you understand that joke, though. There are a lot of people who wouldn't understand what the heck we're talking about right now. Oh, I was doing that as a child so much with my with our original Nintendo. We, I think, we still have the original Nintendo in my mother's house in Jamaica. Thanks so for, I can bring it up now. One of the things I've been doing since uh, Dispatch Number One um, as a creature comforts is I've been watching a show. I'd be interested if you're watching it, although I'm going to guess that the answer is no. I've been watching a show on AMC called Dispatches from Elsewhere. Have you heard of this thing? Not at all. So it's got your boy in it. It's got uh, Jason Siegel. 
So yeah, Jason Siegel is kind of the main dude in it. It's also got Sally Field in it. Andre Benjamin is in it. Richard E. Grant is kind of the narrator. He kind of comes and goes throughout the story. And then there's uh, Eve Lindy is, or, or sorry, Eve Lindley is the fourth actor. Um, she's a she's a really talented uh, trans actor, and that makes up this core of this cast. And it's basically. It's this weird little story about um, these kind of puzzles that that bring strangers together. Uh, this this series is set in Philadelphia, so Jason Siegel is a guy. He takes the same route to work every week. He buys the same thing at the at the coffee shop. He watches the same show before he goes to bed. He always eats one of the same four things for dinner, and one day he just like he sees a sign on a signpost that, that says like, have you seen this man? And it's got like the little tickets for a phone number. And as he looks to his left, there's the man. So he takes the ticket and he gets drawn into this sort of strange secret society um, called Jejun, like in French. And they make these very imaginative, elaborative, happenings that are just completely uh antithetical to his life right they're they're elaborate and they're lively and they involve you, you know imagination and passion and he's drawn into it and so the first episode ends off with a whole bunch of strangers getting together and parsing off into teams to seek out these like basically great big drawn out riddles um, and his team is Andre Benjamin, Eve Lindley, and Sally Field. The show is beautiful, first of all. So after that very long, drawn-out intro, the show is gorgeous. It is very um, Michelle Gondry. It's very Terry Gilliam. It's very, you know, it's it's got that really imaginative DIY quality to it. And right now, as as a distraction, it's great because... I mean, it's it's people getting outside, <laughs> first and foremost, and, and like getting together and wandering around their city and, and going on these grand adventures. Apparently, it's based on a documentary like this shit actually happened uh, years ago in, in various cities. And it's just really beautiful watching these elaborative missions and challenges and explorations take place on this show. It's looks like a wild one certainly if you're into like eternal sunshine or if you're into brazil um this is it's that kind of it's it's that kind of thing like there's one episode where what they have to find is one of those you know those those fake toy talking fish that are like mounted to the wall yeah so they gotta find they find the talking fish but the talking fish is the voice of somebody else who's telling them where to go so they're carrying around this stupid toy talking fish which is telling them like take a left now so it's it's really beautiful it's really fun to see everybody in it is really good richard e grant as i said he could, like that man can narrate the phone book and and it'd be great so I'm, I'm really enjoying that i was saying over dinner tonight that the one thing i worry about is that this show this season especially won't have a conclusion i worry about everything that's on tv right now about whether or not they finished their series before going to air because it'll be really it, like it's going to be a lot of letdowns if we get a lot of like seven of tens you know what i'm saying 
We all have to make it work. Look, if I can deal without sports, you can deal with with waiting for your finale. I, but that's the thing. I don't even think I'd get the finale. I think that they would probably just roll on into season two and just leave it be. Like if you go back, uh, if you go back to like when the when the writer strike happened back in two thousand nine, there were a lot of shows that just kind of stopped. Yeah. The, when you when they got to that point where they're like, well, we can't work, so yeah. there's this. Yep, yep. It, it, it was weird. There were some that got lucky enough that it had enough pre-thought to kind of do a quick, like, we'll be back next week. The, the, the other thing with Dispatches from Elsewhere is they've said it's going to be an omnibus show, so every season is going to be a different city, a different cast... And you won't, like, you know, it's not going to be like Walking Dead, where they just keep on going and going and going. Every season is going to be a new story for as long as they choose to do it. So check that one out. And then the other thing I've been doing the last two weeks um, is I've actually been reading a lot of comics uh, because they're digital and I can get as many as I want from the library for free, even though I can't get hard copies of any books right now from the library. So uh, I've been trying to catch up on some of the great comics from the last 10 years that I missed. Um, and I ended up reading a really good one called day tripper by Fabio moon. Um, it's this Brazilian story basically of a, of, uh, this writer kind of learning what life is all about and all of its facets. And the writing is gorgeous. The art is really beautiful. And every chapter had, it kind of ends with this really, like a, a death that also reaffirms life. Um, that was incredible. And then I also, that's an all in one. Like that, that's, it's, it was like a 10 issue run that they brought all into one volume uh, by Fabio moon. And then I also read uh, Mark Russell's comic of Snagglepuss, the, uh, the old cartoon character. Yep. Yeah. I did not expect that comic book to be nearly as good as it was. I heard good things about that when it came out. Everyone was kind of wowed by it, yeah. Yeah, I, I gotta believe that either they only ever intended it to be a limited run, or they got a few issues in and found that it really wasn't selling, because it's, it's six issues and done. But they tell their whole story in six issues. Um, so it's like, you know, if I, if I could get my hands on a copy of a hard copy, the whole run would be in one volume. And the art is gorgeous. They put Snagglepuss and they put Snagglepuss into the middle of the um, the communist hearings, the the McCarthy communist hearings in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties. They put both him and Huckleberry Hound into the middle of the uh, Stonewall riots and arrests. And it's just like the writing in it is incredible. The art is amazing. And I swear to God, if you told me that I'd be reading a comic about those Hanna-Barbera cartoons that I grew up on as a boy and loving it, I would have said that you're a liar. Well, we lie a lot of times. <laughs> it's, it's good that you've got a brand. So there we go. That's uh, that's what Andrew and I have been uh, doing for the last few weeks to keep ourselves occupied. If you're looking for something to to uh, to keep yourself busy, try Block Us, try one of his video games that he mentioned as well. What is? By the way, can I ask you... What is Animal Crossing? Is this something I should be doing? I'm going to talk about something really closely related to that later in this show. Okay. 
good to know. So, um, you know, if you're if you're bored with Animal Crossing or you're bored with Blockus, try Dispatches from elsewhere. Try Snackle Plus, Day Tripper. Uh, lots of things to do while you're uh, keeping social distance and keeping quarantine. But we have a film to talk about. We have a feature uh, for this episode. The feature for Dispatch Number Two is Inside Lewin Davis. Come on, right back after this. Hang me, oh hang me. I'll be dead and gone. Hang me, oh hang me I'll be dead and gone I wouldn't mind the hanging But the laying in the graves For long poor boy been all around this world Inside Lewin Davis was released in 2013. It was directed and written by Joel and Ethan Cohen. It stars Oscar Isaac Carrie Mulligan, Justin Timberlake, John Goodman, Adam Driver, Max Casella, and Garrett Hedlund. Oscar Isaac is Lewin Davis, a folk singer 10 years late to the party. Or perhaps five years too early, but we'll come back to that. Over the course of a week, he goes on an odyssey that involves a runaway cat, a pregnant acquaintance, a guest spot on a novelty song, a road trip with a poet and a jazz legend, and a lot of couches slept on. The trip is taken with a flimsy coat, inadequate shoes, and heavy guitar case. And it is in the hopes that somehow, somewhere, someone will give him his big break and the whole world will understand his musical gifts and get a better understanding of what lays inside Lewin Davis. I wish I could tell you it works out for the man. This is a dark film, emotionally and visually. Hell, the first words we hear aloud are, hang me, oh hang me. Much of the action takes place in dreary clubs, apartments, cars, and diners, where occasionally splashes of light help us see through the din. In scene after scene, we keep watching a musical Sisyphus push the boulder up the hill in the hopes of catching an artistic and professional break. Spoiler alert, he never gets it. That means, for the second dispatch in a row, we are talking about something dreary as an emblem of ten years gone by. So, pop quiz hotshot, why do we do this to ourselves? Why stem the tide of our own misery and life failings with someone else's misery and failings as company? Because it's cool? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when you give when you give that good an intro, you're like, "What do I say to this?" Um, this movie is probably peak Coin Brothers. Oh, Coin no, Brothers, those are fighting words. Coin Brothers are many things. Yes, they are. Right? They've gone through phases. Right? They walk the tight line between being funny and being dramatic, between being um, esoteric and being completely existential. They they continue to do all sorts of things. But if you actually track their movies, it feels almost like uh, as you're going through them, you see what they are going through. You see they go through their zany phase when they're making um, Barton Fink, Hudsucker, Proxy, and Fargo. You see, you think they're going through their Hollywood phase when you see Oh Brother, We're Out There, Intolerable Cruelty, and The Lady Killers. And you see them going through their Oscar phase when No Country for Old Men and a serious man hits you. But And True Grit came right after that. But when Inside Lewin Davis comes out, like it felt to me as though the Coen brothers 
had hit peak of all of their talents, right? And they found a way to put it all into one existential music drama in which a man gets nowhere, but you spend a week with him without even knowing this movie started at the end. This movie is just every piece of them pushed into one with the great cinematography that they generally have, with the great characters they generally have, but with less of the narrative that they generally push into movies. This movie feels separate and apart from all of their other movies. It's in no way close, but still related to the sort of things they kind of had going in a serious man. Because you have the the constant looming of worry over this character. It feels a little bit like Fargo in the ridiculousness of that drive to Chicago with my man John Goodman in the backseat. Right. right. And at the same time, somehow it also feels a little bit like No Country for Old Men, where you're stuck with a guy, you're not sure if he'll make it out alive, <laughs> but you're just kind of hanging on the edge of your seat, hoping that he'll be somewhere you'll enjoy by the end. Well, I mean, and, he starts the whole thing with singing Hang Me, Oh Hang Me. So you're yeah. you're asking yourself, is this guy going to make it out of this movie? Yeah. yeah. Um, and... I mean, these are the kind of movies that stick with me and at the same time challenge me to watch them again. Because I remember when this movie came out, I saw it and I was like, I'm not, I didn't think I was too into it. Then I had to watch it for my podcast because, you know, that's how life goes. I watch a movie on my own today. Five weeks later, Douglas is like, ooh, Coen Brothers. And I have to talk about it on the podcast. Um <laughs> This is where I need I to underline it. that it's your show. You know, like you're <laughs> you're you're the one driving the, the driving the truck here. <laughs> um mm, question mark. So, <laughs> I mean, I get the joy of editing out the things I really don't want people to hear. That's what that that's that's the privilege I get of that gotcha. show. Okay, please continue. Um, then I rewatched it for the podcast and I fell completely and absolutely in love with what the coins are doing. I watched again, I, I looked on Letterboxd when I logged it, and this is the fifth time I'm logging this movie. Um, and I watch it this time around, and I'm just kind of fallen back into that first mode of being lost as to where the coins are going with this. And at the same time, enjoying that the movie feels a little lost in that same way you described it, in which it's this odyssey of random tales that, are only held together by the fact that it's about one musician. I still love how it's lost in that way. They, this movie remains a masterpiece. Well, okay. Um, so let, let let's let's pick up a little bit of what you laid down there. Uh, I was later to the party with the Coen Brothers, which is to say that I did not enjoy Fargo when I first saw it as a teenager and didn't really catch up to them until uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou and The Man Who Wasn't There in like 2000 and 2001. And then I backed up and I started, one, I, I started getting things that I didn't get the first time around. And two, I started filling in gaps of their early work that I'd never seen. So stuff like Hudsucker Proxy and Miller's Crossing and, you know, Jesus, Blood Simple which I, you know, all of that stuff had got past me by the time I caught up. 
Um, but at the beginning, when I was first watching stuff like Lebowski and Fargo, I found their humor spectacularly dry. Um, this movie would have fit amazingly well into that time period because all of the humor in this thing is incredibly dry. I mean, there, there's a couple gags that are that are real knee slappers in this movie, but a lot of the real, you know, WTFery of this movie is is just like, you know, they swirled the gin in the martini glass and then dumped it out. It's that dry. Some gin residue on the glass. That's how dry this mar this martini is and this humor is. It being their masterpiece, I disagree because these are men who made Fargo and made No Country for Old Men and made A Serious Man, which, you know, you want to talk about them being their most esoteric. It does not get much more esoteric than that movie. That is a movie made by two men who have an Oscar on their shelves and just don't give a care anymore. Um, but it is really, really good. Um, it's funny because of what we're going to talk about on the next episode, what we talked about on the last episode and some of the other ones that I've got mapped out. This is the movie so far where I'm like, yeah, it's really good. I don't know if it would make, it did not make my list of top films of the decade. And I'm kind of scratching my head as to how it made yours, but I, I'm, I would never sit here and say it's a, it's a bad movie. It's a great movie. I just, this is where I'm, I'm sitting back and being like, but how great is it really? How great is it really? This is this is the movie in which I don't know if you recognize that Oscar Isaac kind of announces himself in a strange way. Before this, did we even have Drive? We did. He, he's got a weird career trajectory because he was in a boatload of stuff for years. Like, I mean, he's in Che. I do not remember him in Che. He's in Body of Lies no, as well. He's one of the people in Che. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> he's in Body of Lies as well. I saw that movie. And then I kind of started catching up with him in like 09, 2010, 2011. Because he's in stuff like Agora. He was the um, he was Prince John in the Ridley Scott Robin Hood. And then he did stuff like Su Who remembers Sucker that Punch. Um, and then Drive was in 2011. So you get this. But in 2012, he did a bunch of stuff that's all pretty shitty so in between drive this was kind of his return and it was very much his coming out party definitely but even so like this movie feels like the frustrated without the laugh track version of coen brothers movies because coen brothers movies in themselves are about frustrated people right yeah when you watch when when you watch movies like intolerable cruelty you're seeing a man who doesn't even know he's frustrated just kind of <laughs> go wild right right um when you watch movies like raising arizona you see nick cage as a not even frustrated father be frustrated at the fact that he can't give his wife what she wants right no Country for Old Men is the same. This movie is that, but without that weird undertone of everyone knowing it's funny, right? This is this is the movie you walk into thinking you're going to see those movies, but everyone in this movie is just kind of a character upon themselves. Even though there is the the guy who owns the dive bar who keeps talking about how he wants to get with um, the girl. Right. right. Who I will never not call Vinny from Doogie Howser. 
Um, I don't remember Doogie Howser well enough to remember anyone from Doogie Howser other than Doogie Howser. Right? Trust me, he's a, he's the best friend, and he will always, to me, be Vinny from Doogie Howser. Or even the the military man who gets that who gets the one scene where he's just there slurping on his his cereal in front of Oscar Isaac, like. This movie plays like a Coen Brothers movie, but it feels like something completely different. And I, it just resonated with me in a way that I feel, as much as I know that I will spin up True Grit and um, No Country for Old Men more times than not, this movie is the movie that I feel more than all the Coens. Okay, well, I, I think that uh, we, could, we could probably uh, schedule a counseling session for that, because, wow... If nothing else, this is certainly upper level Cohen's. Like this, what you know? When we get into the discussion of is this a masterpiece of two master artists or not, you know, what we need to begin with is the fact that they are unbelievably talented and have at least half a dozen masterpieces in their now thirty or forty year career. And and where does this rank? Within that, now, if we want to narrow it down a little bit and get back to the crux of this show, this show is about the decade gone by, and in the decade gone by, we had this film, True Grit, Hail Caesar, and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Now, if you want, I would really fight you over whether this is better or True Grit is better, um, but we can agree that it is certainly one of the better two, um, and the the other two, they're just kind of having a laugh you know they're just they're making something that makes something whereas in those other where in this film and true grit they have something to say which is especially interesting in the fact that true grit is a remake you want that might be your your trump card in all of this is of the two masterpieces this decade this is the one that's original yeah all right um i mean i'd I'd agree with you that true grit is the more is the more conventional winner of this debate i'm just saying it's a better film so right. there's that. <laughs> At the same time, you're right. What the Coen brothers do, they really love to play in that, like I said, that Sisyphean uh, lane on the highway where it's just not moving. Like everybody's just moving an inch at a time and half a car length and half a car length just to get to an off ramp to get somewhere they don't even really want to go. That is kind of their mindset with films like a serious man and this film and Fargo, you know, they, they, they really love to tell the story of losers who don't want to admit that they're losers. And that I think like, I mean, that's really one of the things that makes inside Lewin Davis work. And what makes Oscar Isaac's performance so great is he's sitting there watching what's happening around him. And he's like, I know I'm talented. That is not in dispute. There is no question of my artistic ability or, you know, my, my ability to hold an audience. I just can't seem to catch a break. And, you know, and that, and that starts to stem over into the rest of his life over the course of what it's, it really, it's amazing that it's just one week, but it's just, it's a really bad week that seems to just be taking him right off the course of where he thought he would be going um that is a lot of times that is the type of film they like to tell and maybe we're drawn to them because some of us thought we were going one place and ended up somewhere very different but that's where they live 
do you feel that thinking about this movie that if this were a real person that this is like the equivalent of like a sugar man this is somebody who get you hear a deep cut of one well, this day is absolutely on a a, oh no 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 this is absolutely a real person this is there are scores no, of musicians like Lewin Davis, um, that you'll I know hear... they base it off of real people and real careers that happened. Probably. But I'm curious as to whether you 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 actually hear the person that you think it's from, or do you just think of this as stand-in for random? I mean, I I know that a lot of it was drawn from one particular, like like flourishes of one particular folk artist. But no, this this is a composite of you know, all sorts of garage bands and all sorts of folk acts and all sorts of, like you said, like guys like Sugarman and um, Ron Sexsmith and Daniel Johnson, guys who were like adored within the artistry, but never actually made it to stardom. You know, like they, they probably even were able to do Lou and Davis one better and make it their living. You know, because like I mean, that's the thing. Lewin at the end of this movie has to go back into the Merchant Marines to to actually make cash. But you know, the, these type of musicians, they never were able to get even moderate artistic success, let alone stardom. And that's the thing. Like I don't think that Lewin Davis wants stardom exactly, but I think like he just he wants to be able to get on a stage, play his guitar, and sing. And make and you know be able to make a make a living at it. It's so, wild. It is. It is. Now you know we were talking about Isaac. Now what I think Isaac does with this character. First of all, I mean I got to give the man props because I really cannot imagine anybody else in this role. Um, he wears an expression on his face that's one part weariness, one part judgment. And one part pure exasperation, and it, and he wears it so well. He's got really expressive eyes. You know, he's he's got the full beard in this movie, and his hair is a little bit longer. Um, he he's always just kind of hoping that what he's seeing is not actually happening, and it's everything from you know being locked out of the apartment with the cat to hearing a band that he doesn't think is as good as him to, you know, even just a point where he's sitting in a men's room and reading the graffiti on the wall and just kind of wondering about the state of his life. Oscar Isaac does an incredible job of basically bitching about the state of the world, but not putting us off while he does it. Nothing beats the end of this movie where he kind of gives the guy the, Enjoy your night, man, who just beat the shit out of him. Right, right. <laughs> Which I need to tell people at this point. So, as I mentioned off the top of the show, I tend to listen to Andrew's podcast while I'm grocery shopping. And when I listened to the Inside Lewin Davis episode, I actually had to pull the car over because one of these yahoos told the joke that is not at all funny, but struck me as so dumb and so stupid that I, w I found myself laughing despite myself describe the beginning of this movie, the physical act that actually begins this movie. Um, a gentleman punches Louis Davis so hard. He falls into last week. Yeah. Are you proud of yourself? 
I am. Okay, I'm glad. He punched I was going to save. I was going to save that for a little later, but cool. No. <laughs> he punched him into last week, which yep. I mean, the funny thing is, if you're not paying attention, you don't you don't actually catch that. Uh, because it just seems like it, when he wakes up in the in the Gorfine's apartment, it seems like it's just the next morning. But as it gets going, you realize it was last week. I wonder, at one point, do you recognize that? Because I feel like I didn't really know that until really late in the movie the first time I saw it. No, because it, it's a loop, right? And we, we end we end where we began. So I, I certainly didn't catch it off the beginning. There's There's certainly no, you know, seven days earlier title card that comes up at the beginning of that they just trust you to go with it and i mean the, the crazy thing is it works it's it's not a gimmick it's not a and it's not this elaborate story flourish or anything like that it it just it's just a natural way to to book in the story quite nicely actually um and and you know isaac that's the same sort of thing like even just the way he wakes up on a normal monday morning where he's couch surfing he wakes up so weary and so out of sorts that you think to yourself, he might have got the shit kicked out of him last night. Yeah, he he did. He got he got it kicked out of him. <laughs> he he probably like I theoretically want to say that like this week is emblematic of every week, and therefore it always ends with him being knocked into the previous week. Right? Uh, maybe I don't like he. I mean, the the thing is, Lewin gets in so many arguments like he's at one point he's going tooth and nail with gene played by carrie mulligan he's going at it with his sister he's getting heckled from the back seat by john goodman's roland you know just time after even just trying to get a straight answer out of his agent he's just always in some sort of a heated discussion so i gotta believe the man gets slapped weekly so, okay, my question to you is, what is your big scene from this movie? Because every scene plays itself like a big scene, right? Um, there are people who attach themselves to the F. Murray Abraham scene, hmm. um, where he gets to look a Lewin in the face and say, I don't see money in this, which is perfect, Yeah, right? You, you, you get the scene with the condom on condom bit, which is <laughs> great. Right, you get the scene. What, what I think is one of my favorite moments, which is not really a funny moment, but it, it's like a funny moment to me, which is basically the joke of this movie. Lewin Davis is the joke of this movie. The, the concept of the of the folk singer that you've never heard of, who struggles to become a folk singer, but he's technically a folk singer. Where at the end of this movie, you see what obviously Bob Dylan take the stage. Right, and I just kind of did a quick check because I'm bad with years and history to see where Bob Dylan was in 1961. Um, to see that no actual album had come out for Bob Dylan yet, so he obviously was not famous or anything. Um, but whenever I see that, like what I see is the look on Lewin Davis's face where he's like, where you realize that he knows he'll never make it, even if he doesn't admit it to himself. Because he just saw Bob Dylan and goes, oh, that's what it looks like. Yep. Right? The scene for me, we'll, like, we'll dig into it in a second, but I think the scene for me is probably Please, Mr. Kennedy. First of all, because it ends my favorite part of the movie. So my, my, my favorite parts of this movie 
are the first act and and the end. That second act is what I think holds it back for me from being called a masterpiece or being called one of the greatest films of the decade or anything like that, because that second act is really dry. Um, and I, I felt that again watching it this week. But please, Mr. Kennedy, as the end of the first act, if this was a play, that would be like, just drop the curtain there and I'm going to go to the lobby singing that song. What I love, though, back to your moment of him seeing Bob Dylan in, in The Gaslight, is that's the moment that really turned, like, it's it's fitting that we go from that moment and that look. It's a really quick look on his face when he's walking out of the cafe and he, he's hearing Bob sing and looking at Bob sing, but you can see on his face, oh, shit. And then he goes and gets the crap kicked out of him. Like, I mean, like that is exactly what has just figuratively happened. So he might as well go literally have it happen. And this is where I was saying at the beginning of the episode, he made his career choice either 10 years too late or five years too early, depending. And this is where he's five years too early. Because if he was at Dylan's age and level at this moment, he'd be a star. But he's already got responsibilities. He's already got, you know, commitments that he has to honor, that he has to take care of. He's already lost a singing partner to suicide off the wrong bridge that he can't latch on to this movement that's about to happen in A, in New York City, B, in America as a whole, and take advantage of the rocket that Dylan and Baez and those type of singers uh, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary are about to launch into the pop culture stratosphere because he missed his shot, and his shot was ten years ago. Um, that that's the thing. Like that moment is so subtle. In a lesser movie, that moment would be clobbered over your head, but in this movie, it's quick. If you blink, you'll miss it, and it's perfect. It's amazing. Yep. Um, I love you talk about Mr. Kennedy because, yes, that song is amazing. Yes, I love Adam Driver doing his space sounds. <laughs> yep. Um, but more importantly, like, coming back to, like, my version of the moment from that scene is when he shows up in Adam Driver's apartment and shoves his box of records under the desk only to see it's blocked by Adam Driver's box of records. Right, where you're like, yeah, it's just a movie on a movie on a movie of the same joke of the lost artist of the 60s. Yep. Yeah, Al, Al Cody didn't make it as a singer either. You know, that's why he's living in a dump. Like He even he even says it's a dump. At the, at the end of the first act, we get this song, Please Mr. Kennedy, which is... Uh, first, I, I was going to say it's one of the catchier numbers of this movie, but this movie is actually loaded with really great songs. Just top to bottom, this is a banging soundtrack. But please, Mr. Kennedy. It is. Please, Mr. Kennedy stands out because it's so absurd and so stupid and gets stuck in your ear. And it really epitomizes Lewin's struggle because this is this dumb little trifle is about to go and become this huge hit that the people who worked on it are probably never going to come together and work on something like this again. Music history is just littered with this kind of song with like one-eyed one horn flying purple people eater or itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini by like 
artists you'd never heard from before and would never hear from again, but still get play so they still get money. So first of all, you've got a song that Lewin really doesn't want to touch and is only just kind of basically dropped into because he needs the cash. It's so beneath him. And you can see it in the, just kind of the way he's trying to pick up the song. It takes a second or two while Adam Driver is making his stupid noises, you know, over to his right. And then just to put the icing on the cake, he doesn't take a royalty from the song because he needs the money now. And that is one of his undoings. That is, I mean, if you want to talk about street of musicians who are artists, quote unquote, and still doing pop music, you want to talk about Bob goddamn Dylan, right? And his song, Wigwam. Do you know this song? Mm -mm. Oh my God. I need you to like, when this is over, pull this up on Spotify as soon as possible. Okay. Bob Dylan, this song um, called Wigwam, where literally he just makes noises (laughs) for three minutes okay. and it was like a pocket of the time <laughs> because it was a dumb song <laughs> it's amazing i love that story of music that concept of the artistry and i guess we have the same thing in movies where we have people who want who want to only be seen as these pure artists who make these pure experiences but at the end of the day there is popular culture that thing that fuels the industry in the finances and the the currency of it, right? So it's it's always a part of this world that I find fascinating. It's really fascinating, as you say, because there is a craft to it. Like I, I mean, don't get me wrong. Please, Mister Kennedy is inherently dumb, but it's it's not something that I would think was just scribbled on the back of a napkin. You know, like there's actual careful construction. In something that is still inherently dumb, I I love getting into uh, the deconstruction of pop songs, of things like hooks and and catches and lyrics and that kind of thing. We were talking about the creature comforts in the last segment, and one of the creature comforts I took last week was uh, I fell down a YouTube rabbit hole of a classical uh, musician named Chili Gonzalez deconstructing pop songs, you know, for for German radio. And talking about why Billie Eilish's song is a hit or why Drake's song is a hit and getting into the timing and the rhythm and the major keys and the minor keys and, and you know, the influences, it's all in there, you know, and a lot of these artists just have it in their head. So they're able to pull from it. And that, that was, that would be what you would get with artists like Jim Berkey, who is Justin Timberlake's character or Al Cody, Adam driver, you know, that Lewin doesn't really want to subscribe to is there is artistry in creating something simple and making it work. Yeah. Even in that moment doing Mr. Kennedy, you have that piece where he's sitting there and he's like, I'm happy for the job, but like, what the hell is this goddamn song? Yeah. Yeah. And And he's having to, you know, like, I mean, he's even having to hold his hand and say, no, it's two puh puhs into the please. Are you sure it's not puh puh puh? No, it's two puhs. You know, like, it, that's the thing is it all <laughs> it's 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 amazing that somebody sat there and said, no, it's two puhs. Three puhs is going to be too much. Two puhs, golden. Enough, I thought of in that scene this time, the movie once 
Um, there's that scene where they, they learn the main song, which yep. I've forgotten the name of right now. Falling slowly. Uh, How dare you? I'm I'm into my third drink right now. So okay, give me... we're there. All right, go on. <laughs> um, falling slowly. And I remember watching it with the commentary on and hearing the people be like, yeah, no one learns a song that quickly. And I just watched this scene and I'm like, yeah, no one learns a song that quickly. <laughs> I would like to believe that there are musicians out there who learn songs that quickly. Elton John is supposed to have caught things really quick. And I would imagine that Prince pulled, you know, minor miracles out of his head. Now, I don't know if necessarily Al Cody and Lewin Davis and Gene Berkey are going to pull something like that out of their heads. Uh, or not Gene Berkey, sorry. Um, Jim Berkey are going to pull things like that out of their heads. But some musicians out there are going to be able to come up with stuff like that kind of quick. Certainly, maybe not Marquetta and Glenn from from once, but some will. Um, no, but yeah, please, Mr. Kennedy, it, it's, it, th- th- I mean, that's, th- that's the hard drop of this movie is going from that into the road trip, which seems to take forever. That was, I remember specifically, that was the moment in the theater where I was starting to wane and I was starting to be like, why are we here? Why are we out on the road? with Garrett Headland and John Goodman complaining about how folk singers only play three chords on an ukulele when we just came from Please Mr. Kennedy and a cat running around a subway and Carrie Mulligan going condom on condom on condom. It's it's like night and it's literally like night and day. It's amazing is what it is. No, it is not. (laughs) (laughs) It eventually burns in. And I will say that on rewatches, that second act seemed swifter, Um, especially by the time that we, you know, by the time we're done with uh, Johnny Five and Roland Turner, it that part seems a lot quicker now than it did the first time I saw it. But yeah, just that that odyssey out into the highway out into chicago to go meet f marie abraham that whole section if somebody were sitting down after after hearing us talk about it i could see that be the moment where they're like what's going on in animal crossing mr nook told you to go and get him some some spiders that's what's going on in animal crossing um and you won't know what any of that means nope no idea One day maybe you will you could just be making um. you could just be making up words <laughs> As far as I know. Look, I didn't make up words in the roti shop. I'm not making up words. Nah, that's a good point. Um, right. <laughs> point taken. Nobody understands that but us, but okay. Um, those are the best podcast moments. They are. You know, it's this is the movie where Lewin says, I think he, he says it at least once. I think he says, he might even say it twice, where he says, if it was never new and it never gets old, then it's a folk song. And I will admit that that does encapsulate this movie. This is not, this is really not a movie of its time. You know, that's the curious thing about choosing it to represent the decade is it doesn't feel specifically like a 2010s movie. It could have been a 90s movie, could have been a 2000s movie, could have been an 80s movie, could have been like a 70s movie for that matter. A lot of movies that are of their time, as the calendar marches on, they start to feel a little bit worn and i'm thinking about like you know especially a lot of the really poppy stuff like matrix or avatar or even you know some of these um comic book movies that we're so enamored with 
they they will eventually start to show their wear. This is not one of those movies. This is a movie that feels both incredibly fresh. Like you could have told me that it was made last week if they were still making movies last week, or you could have told me that it was made thirty years ago, and I would totally believe you on either count. That is the Coen Brothers in a nutshell. I feel like all of their movies feel like that, and I feel part of it is because almost every one of their movies seeps out whatever year they want to kind of tell you the movie is set in. Like, even the more modern movies that they make at the time, like Intolerable Cruelty or Burn After Reading, like, they always feel like they declare so clearly as to when the movie is set that everything about the movie as to how it looks, how it's shot, how it feels kind of matches perfectly that it never feels like a movie that was made the wrong year right it just feels like it was the right movie like this movie could have been released today and it would you wouldn't have changed a thing about it um and that's what i love about coin brothers movies i rewatched fargo recently and i'm like this is perfect it doesn't need anything nope or i mean when's the last time you watched miller's crossing Ooh, that's been a couple years. That's a movie that is aging incredibly well. That movie could have been made last week, and you would not have known. I I, I want to believe that when it, especially when it comes to film, because of the amount, the the degree of difficulty that comes with landing a great film, I want to believe that artists like the Coen Brothers set out to create something that's going to stand up for the test of time, that it's never going to be old and it's never going to be new. And that, you know, like, as I said, like it's a folk song and that is what they, maybe that's what they go to make. Like maybe that's your whole point in choosing this movie is their career has been about singing cinematic folk songs. Quite possibly. I mean, their last movie was Busta Scruggs, which was a, a vignette film. And Everything about that is just screaming love for other movies in that genre, in their own ways, right? They continue to remind us all the best pieces of movies from yesteryear, and I love that about them. Yeah, me too. Now, I do need to ask, though, because with all of that said, this is, you know, we're talking about this now for the better part of an hour and this film was your choice, what about this particular title encapsulates the last decade for you? It's hard for me to really qualify that because, number one, I wasn't really thinking of this in the, skin, in the sake of encapsulating the decade because if we're talking about encapsulating the decade, then we're talking about movies, for me, we're talking about movies that push the medium forward, whether it be technologically. So we'd be talking about the avatars, even though that was 2009. Um, or we'd be talking about things that pushed what we want to talk about further. But that's kind of a hard conversation. So you talk about people like the Taika Waititi's, right? Um, this movie, it feels to me like when you asked me, because I remember when we initially talked, you were like, name your top five of the decade. And I just named the top five that I had listed. Um, and then you're like, that one. I'm like, all right, cool. Um, like this movie for me is just my favorite movie of the decade. I feel weirdly enough, like everything I'd want to say about this movie isn't specific to the decade in a weird way. 
So if I was trying to encapsulate a decade, I might not have picked this movie. This movie feels, this movie is just a movie for me of the, uh, from the last 10 years okay. in the same way that last year I'd talk about once upon a time in Hollywood. Oh, right. That, and I'm not, I'm not goading you into talking about that movie. Right. Um, it's just me trying to say that while I don't think that movie that movie represents all of the best qualities of 2019. I don't think this movie represents the best qualities of the 2010s, right? Or do we, do we call it the tens? I don't, I don't know, know what, what people calling are calling it. I'm 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 thankful that we're in 2020, so I don't have to think about what we call the decade anymore. Basically, you're taking my question and you're taking a pass. I'm taking a pass every year of movies. It is its own period drama piece, and other than just being an exit existential question as to what do we do with our life with once again silly little um david byrne has been asking this question from yesteryear right how did we get here mm-hmm. is what he gives us in his own in his own words like this is a question that's not new to the 2010s or the 2020s or even the 1800s, I'd assume. This movie is just its own movie. And yes, I'm taking a long road to a pass, kind of like Coen Brothers. <laughs> well, Mr. Robinson, I have done your homework for you because I asked myself that question as I rewatched it this week. And this is what I came up with. What this film encapsulates about the last decade is something inherent into Lewin himself. And that is taste and canon. So Lewin, time after time after time, sees an artist pick up a guitar or stand in front of a microphone and do their thing. And he looks at them with... He's never impressed. He's sitting in the cafe... And, and first of all, like he's listening to Troy Nelson, the the army uh, um, recruit, do his thing, and he's like, "What is this shit?" Meanwhile, the entire gaslight cafe, you can hear a pin drop, and somebody actually shushes him, you know, uh, and you hear that Troy has been it has interest from a label, and then you know the very next number, Carrie Mulligan and Justin Timberlake go up and join him as a trio. And again, he's got that look of bemusement on his face as they sing their number. But sure enough, they get to the chorus and the whole cafe like chimes in like it's a sing-along. And again, he's like, holy shit, this is a sing-along? You guys know this one? You guys like this one? You don't know my songs. You don't like my songs. And, and, it, and that comes up over and over and over. You know, he here like he doesn't want to do Mr. Kennedy. He doesn't want to talk to the jazz musician. Just time and time again, he's looking at the art put in front of him as though it's beneath him and as though it's not quote unquote real music. And I swear to God, that was all over the place this last decade. It, whether it was in books or you know film or music people went tooth and nail over what was and wasn't good enough and maybe it was the rise of social media in this last decade that made those you know looks down the nose a little bit louder than they had been in the past because being a snob and being a critic and forming a canon that's nothing new 
but it seems to have reached steroid-induced levels this last decade because the because the microphones are louder. So that for me, if I'm saying what does this movie represent about the last ten years, that's what it is. It's Lewin's complete aversion to think outside of his narrow little box of what is and isn't true art and true greatness. I I agree very much, but at the same time, it's it's strange to me. Like I know how much that's become a part of our lives. Um, these days where you focus in on one topic so clearly that you judge it so harshly for not being that topic. Um, but at the same time, like I know that's been around forever. I feel the difference is just that we've become louder. You're right. And that it always has been there. Um, the idea of what true art is and what true artists are doing. I just feel like in the last 10 years, it's, it's it took that amateur game and went pro so yeah it's 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 a wonderful time we live in is what i'm saying um but we do end uh still our, our dispatches here the way we would end the new slang on the matinee cast proper with a souvenir something tangible or intangible from this movie if you could take away from it and keep you would andrew robinson what would be your souvenir from inside lewin davis so there's an obvious answer to this with this movie, but the the sad part is that obvious answer is actually attainable. So I'm going to ignore that for the moment. Um, that being the music itself, right? I'm going to ignore that for the moment, and I'm gonna I want to talk about wardrobe, mm. right? There are some wardrobe pieces in this movie that are perfect. There are a group of young men who are singing late in this movie with sweaters that look amazing. <laughs> Well, what I would take away from this movie, which is more generic and more non nondescript, is Adam Driver's cowboy hat in yeah. in Mr. Kennedy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what I want from this movie. I want Adam Driver's cowboy hat. It's a very good hat. I do love, you know, again, just to epitomize how little respect Lewin Davis has for some of his contemporaries when. Vinny from Doogie Hauser asks him, what does he think of the Irish quartet that's singing on the stage? His only answer is, well, their sweaters are nice. You know, me and him, we think the same. You too. The sweater game in this movie was years ahead of Knives Out, is what you're saying. Um, well, I'm going to take, yeah, take an obvious souvenir from this movie. Uh, I want that cat. That's a really cute cat. It's, really, it's reasonably well-behaved. You know, my cats are bastards sometimes. It's a ginger cat. You already have cats. What's what's the deal here? Are you cheating on your cat with other cats? They what's don't know. They have no idea. Listen, my cats right now are all are just pissed off that we're all up in their crib. They they have the they have the rule of this place for you know ten hours a day every day, and they're like, when are you people going away? Like just just can you can you both just go to the store for twenty minutes so we can sit on the chair that we normally sit on? Um, so no, I I have no I have no guilt about cheating on my cat. Uh, with the orange tabby in this movie, Ulysses, as it turns out, is the cat's name. Um, I, I love the cat in this movie. Um, but there we go. That Do is you want Ulysses or the other one? The one he's supposed <laughs> the to The one without reverse. a scrotum? <laughs> <laughs> i do love i love that line so very much where is his scrotum and then it cuts to a hard crash to black after that that's where the movie comes back you know like i was talking about how it's it's a it's a really tough walk for that second act when you get to the end of that second act and it's where is his scrotum 
that's uh, I'm back in at that point. Um, <laughs> there we go. Inside Lewin Davis. Uh, Mr. Robinson says it's one of the best films of the decade. I'm not entirely sure, but it is certainly a great film. Um, check it out uh, if you if we haven't already spoiled you off this movie. Um, but come on back after this. We're going to flip the record over and play the other side. Talk about some other movies right after a quick break. If I had wings, I'd know I'd fly the river to the one I love Oh, fare thee well, my honey, fare thee well we're back. He's Andrew Robinson. I'm Ryan McNeil. You're listening to the Winchester Chronicles Dispatch Number Two. We've been talking about Inside Lewin Davis. This is the part of the show where we suggest further reading, companion films, um, bonus material if you wanted to give yourself a little movie night. Because what else do you have to do right now? Uh, start us off, Mr. Robinson. Uh, while you try to sober up, what is your first choice that somebody could go on to after the opus that is Inside Lewin Davis? So, I'm going to start out at the most obvious level. Okay. And I want to go for a movie from 2007 directed by Todd Haynes, that being I'm Not There, the movie oh, about Bob Dylan. Yeah, right? uh, yeah, um, yeah. I've seen it. <laughs> um, I'm going to be quite honest here. I don't think I've watched it since it came out, but I remember falling madly in love with it at the time. Um, it is a film about Bob Dylan where you have six different actors playing Bob Dylan throughout six different vignettes including um, Richard Gere and the Joker, why have I forgotten his name Um, and a few other actors whose names I won't try and remember right now Ledger, Ben Wishaw Kate Blanchett (laughs) and I want to say Christian Bale was I know he was in the movie. I don't remember if he was one of the Dylans, but possibly. And I remember there was one bit with a young black child. Yeah, whose name I do um, not recall. I mean, who remembers children actors that don't act as adults? Right. Um, <laughs> the, the movie was incredible. It was a ridiculous way of Todd Haynes just playing with versions of movies as to how the, you could see him pulling from like Fellaini movies, pulling from um, the movies that the Coen brothers pulled from here. You could see him doing insane stuff. And it was just, it, it was fun to see a movie about a person where it never made you feel silly for not knowing things about the person because it wasn't like oh here's that moment where bob dylan played that concert that everyone knows about which is what i feel a lot of biopicy movies feel like a lot of the times um it just felt like an expressive version of a bob dylan story which i found fascinating and i mean music guys come on <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Christian Bale is in this movie and he does play a version of Bob Dylan. I saw this film at TIFF in 2007 and I have not thought much about it since. Um, what I do recall is that there are seven different Dylans and the movie would have been much better if it stuck to five. Um, you know, it's like on my screen right now is what, like, like just to kind of focus my eyes while we're talking 
is The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I usually feel this about most omnibus collections, whether it's a book or a movie or a show or so, whatever it happens to be. 19 times out of 20, it goes at least one story, if not more, too far. And it would have been better off as a collection. You know, if it's a five, it would have been better off as a three. If it's a seven, it would have been better off as a five. Now, maybe I should take my own advice because I'm planning to do, you know, somewhere between seven and 12 of these Winchester Chronicles. So maybe I should trim that damn bat back as quickly as I can. As for I'm not there, I mean, it's okay. The, the, the what really buoys this movie is the the Kate Blanchett scenes. Like she is incredible in this movie. So seeing that whole you know no looking back era of of Bob's career is a really cool exploration. But there's other times where people might tap out, especially during the whole Richard Gere Woody Guthrie hogwash okay so if, if you're saying that you're starting off really basic so am i because i'm taking the easy road and going with another coen brothers movie i thought about the the journey of this film specifically like the the, the actual you know one foot in front of the other trip and started to think about what other of their movies is an actual journey and you really kind of begin and end that part of their oeuvre with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which is probably also one of their most accessible movies. Um, you know, similar in, in the way that it's got a very distinctive color palette, similar in the way that it is built on music, um, Americana in that case, instead of folk. Um, and where, you know, where Lewin Davis is really, really dry humor, like arid arid dry humor oh brother where art thou is much more slapsticky and you know easily to digest um it was i don't know if it was exactly where i turned around on them and started to appreciate them more it's a very commercial movie and it again had those really catchy songs on the soundtrack i gotta give them credit for this much when they build a movie around music they tend to do really really well and it's, i'm sure a lot of it comes back down to who they worked with oh brother where art thou they worked with t-bone burnett and he never steers anybody wrong but that was the one for me where i thought about just the absurd journey of you know picking up picking up a musician at the crossroads and happening upon a bible salesman and stumbling their way into a clan rally you know all the while finding everett mcgill's four daughters and getting beaten up in a woolworth you know that kind of could not happen to anybody else type of story is what they do really well and you know if if you like if if you enjoyed that element of lewin davis i figure you'd love that element of a brother Rar thou Oddly enough, I was thinking a lot about that movie while watching or watching um, Inside Lewin Davis again because I'm like, that's where they got like the music hitch. Like, even though they've always been great at soundtracking their movies, I feel like that movie is where they got that concept of just making these fun songs for themselves that end up being these things, these pop hits. I mean, they were sort of playing with it a lot in Big Lebowski too, right? But Big Lebowski is more of a soundtrack, like a classic soundtrack movie. But that movie has full-on 
numbers the same way that oh brother where art thou has numbers and hail caesar has numbers they're very old school in 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 that sort of way the way that they'll just like stop the story for three minutes so that so that tim blake nelson can sing in the jailhouse now am i the only one who feels hail caesar's lower effort coins it is it's it's fantastic for what it is and it's so stupid but it's 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 adorable like that that is a movie made by two men who are deep into their careers have the awards that they need and can move on and can now just make whatever the hell they want and and they wanted to make a golden age hollywood movie a studio system movie so no it it is not like that is never going to enter the conversation as upper echelon cohen's but damn is it good all right, so now we're leading into me being crazy. Okay. Right? Um, now we're leading so into you being crazy? Now? Now. So, yeah, now. Now, 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 now is okay. the time. Now. So we talked about the joke that my co-host made about this movie. <laughs> and that that leaned on me hard, which made me start to think about movies in which people go into next week, which is time <laughs> loop movies. Okay. So if you saw this movie and you thought, oh, this is a fun time loop movie, a time traveling movies, you know what other time travel movie you need to watch? A 2007 Nacho Vigalando movie, Time Crimes. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> Tell people about that one. I feel like that's a movie that's been forgotten or people never actually knew about it. Tell people about that movie. This is going to be a very hard tell because I feel like I'll spoil the whole movie telling people about this. Um the man goes back in time and then he loops himself over himself onto himself in the weirdest of ways and in the Nacho Vigalando ways that are best served. I thought at first I'd talk about Primal because like people talk about Primal, but Time Crimes is a movie I want to mention in this regard. It is a ludicrous South American <laughs> Spanish movie in which a man comes to you and starts knocking on your window and you're like, who is that man? And then time loops happen. And this movie is incredible. I do like things about primer, but I feel like that's a movie that got talked up a lot higher than it deserves to be. Whereas time crimes is not been talked up nearly as high as it should be. Um, plus I just like talking about Nanjo Vigalando. Cause I think that that man, there's a guy who didn't really latch. Like if we're talking about inside Lewin Davis, like there's a, there's something of a Lewin Davis right there. That, that was a dude who I thought was going to be like the next big thing. Like I really thought he would be, you know, in a same sort of category as a guy like Guillermo del Toro. But near as I can recall, he hasn't really been able to put it together that's the thing like even colossal wasn't that big of a hit like we covered it on this show um oddly enough with my guest from the last episode carolyn morissette so if you want to hear us talking about a really cool godzilla meets uh train wreck person going home movie uh check the show notes for an episode about colossal um but nacho vigilando you know after time crimes and movies like extraterrestrial he just never really yeah managed to really latch and it's a shame i thought about inside lewin davis and how it's a movie that illustrates the false promise of the american dream 
Um, and I was trying to think about other movies that talk about the false promise of the American dream. And I went back to 1975 and when's the last time, or perhaps have you ever seen Nashville by Robert Altman? I have seen Nashville. Possibly, you know, we were talking about this earlier with the Coen brothers, possibly his masterpiece, which again is saying something for a man who had more than one masterpiece. What's that? This is the man who did MASH. Yes. So, meh? <laughs> he also made, I mean, he also made Gosford Park. He also made Shortcuts. He's pretty much single-handedly responsible for the career of Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, Nashville, though, is a nice companion to Inside Lewin Davis in the way that not only does it underscore the false promise of the American dream, but it hangs it all on a music industry, in this case, country music, not folk music. Um, it's long. It's sprawling. Like, if you were to take Inside Lewin Davis and basically double it, you know, to make that journey two weeks, to make him meet twice as many people, to increase the music twofold, you'd get Nashville. And then throw in... Elliot Gould walking around a party just because. Nashville, though, I love the way it looks at the music scene, looks at who's making it, who's not, who's got it based on talent, who's got it based on name, the, you know, the politics of the actual scene. When we think about the south, the south of USA, we think about a lot of things, but we think about hospitality. You know, we think about y'all come back now, you hear. Um, whereas in reality, it's just as tricky and closed off and littered with rules as any other society or any other community. They're just more chipper at hiding it. You know, so no, 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 no. I don't mean it. I don't mean it like that. I just mean it like you know, Nashville as a as an industry. Um, I earlier this year watched a the the Ken Burns sixteen hour documentary about country about the history of country music, and believe it or not, it's not long enough. Um, Ken Burns made a documentary shorter than sixteen hours. Uh, he has prohibition is only eight. When he made his country music documentary, you really got a clear indication of the fact that country music, while it is very egalitarian in terms of who sings it, what is required to sing it, what kinds of communities embrace that kind of music and, you know, the the affluence or lack thereof are within these communities, there is still a whole lot of rules and politicking and glad-handing that you have to do within the country music industry to get ahead. And it's it's very much like the kind of hoops that Lewin needs to jump through to get his career on the up and up. You see it in Nashville as well. You see all kinds of people who are really talented and can't get their shit. You see all kinds of people who aren't really that talented or are talented but can't get their shit together who are given just adoration and love and chances. And it, you realize it is all just a complete farce. It all really nicely underscores what America was going through in 1975. Like, you know, that that's the end 
of the Nixon era, and you're seeing it reflected in this movie, which is, as I said, like when you're looking at a movie that is of its time, Nashville, even though you and I weren't born, and a lot of people who are listening to the show probably weren't born, you can see if you look at what America was, what was going on in America in 1975, you can see that in Nashville. So I have one more. All right. And this is when I talk about Animal Crossing, but not really Animal Crossing. I talk about what I, my Animal Crossing. Okay. So in 2016, a video game came out by the name of Stardew Valley, which I am 99% certain you have never heard the name of. You can up that to 100. All right, cool. So Stardew Valley is a 2D like RPG game, but they made it as basically a farming simulator where the story of the game is basically you're a guy in regular life who is working a job at a desk and you wake up one morning and you're like, I'm tired of this job life and you want to go to the country and live out your life in peace. And you go to the country because your uncle left you a, a house or something and you have a farm now. And basically the game is you playing a farming simulator, but there's also like romance stories. There's quests out in caves where you're like doing battles. It's a ridiculously amazing game, which people have played for like four years straight and have, and have, it's had updates. It's, it's, and weirdly enough, since you brought up Animal Crossing earlier, like it is the 2D um, like Super Nintendo version of Animal Crossing. Sounds like with, a hoot and a holler. Right? Um, like Animal Crossing is like a it's 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 a game that's obviously marketed for children. It's very family friendly and I've heard amazing things about it. I had one person from my office have a like 30 minute conversation where Zeki shoved 90 hours into Animal Crossing over the last week. Um and there are people who adore Animal Crossing, and the amount of hours I have spent loving Stardew Valley has made me question whether I should try Animal Crossing. <laughs> but the way Animal Crossing looks keeps making me go like, look, I'm not that young. <laughs> um, but Stardew Valley is amazing, and I kept thinking about it, because number one, whenever I come on this podcast, I always try to bring up a video game or anime-related thing just to annoy Ryan. It works. Um, <laughs> um, but more importantly, like I started to think about the character of Lewin Davis, this man who was trying to avoid regular work, to be an artist, to be this thing he thought he was, and Stardew Valley fixed perfectly. He is you who is at your office desk and hates being at your office desk and wants just to have a free Western life. And Stardew Valley is that. It starts out as a simply farming game. It expands into this amazing, like, story-based adventure game that I love to dig pieces. I've got one more film, and it would be a film that I would bring up as one of the best films of the decade. But we already did an episode on it. Um, in case you haven't, uh, in case I haven't mentioned it already, one of the um, missions of doing this series is to cover films that we didn't cover. Uh, as they were released. And we did a whole episode on this film um, from uh, the same year, actually, as Inside Lewin Davis and a very similar theme um, from 2013. It's a foreign film. I want to say it was from Belgium. Uh, Mr. Robinson, have you seen The Broken Circle Breakdown? I have. I remember that movie. Yeah, that is a movie that... 
also talks about the false promise of America, but not exactly the American dream, more the just the actual American promise. And in that way, this film is actually really timely now because the film is about a couple who meet and fall hard in love um, and very quickly thereafter have, uh, and they're, they're both musicians, um, and very quickly thereafter have a baby. And the crux of the movie is the baby's health and how in a country like America that has so much and is this for, for the better part of a century was this beacon that the whole world was striving to become how a country like that could have failings at its core that would allow its citizens to fall into ill health and to fall by the wayside and be neglected and be forgotten by the country that they are so devoted to. Um, you know, and, and, it's, and it's interested in American culture. It's interested in rock and roll and Coca-Cola and, and apple pie and everything that is classically american through the eyes of a foreigner um it is a heartbreaking movie uh it's a movie i remember i was really wrecked watching uh i I mean it doesn't take much to get me to cry at a movie but this one managed to hit me right in the goods um again as i mentioned earlier it's a it's a movie that's got a lot of incredible music um that is all that every bit of it is done as well as the music in Inside Lewin Davis. Um, and it really, it would make a great double feature from that year. You know, like if you want two great music films from 2013, Broken Circle Breakdown and Inside Lewin Davis will not steer you wrong. It's a really good movie. Um, as I'll include the the link to that episode in the show notes as well. If people are looking for a company, I uh, it's funny because I mentioned these kinds of links and additional content, and I know that actually podcast listening is going down right now. So uh, who saw that coming? Um, but um, there we go. There's some really great stuff to keep you occupied while you're in uh, isolation, social distancing, um, and uh, another dispatch of the Winchester Chronicles in the books. Um, I would love to thank andrew robinson for coming by come on back on monday april 20th 420 (laughs) for our third dispatch where we will be discussing call me by your name andrew can be found on tump the unnamed movie podcast what do you got coming up buddy we would have released the jojo rabbit episode that came out the week before hopefully by a week after we would have brought out the takashi Miike film first love that we're going to plan to talk about so you know there's that fun stuff, and we're gonna probably finish off our Todd Haynes marathon by then. And your and your sorry, sorry, our Edward Yang marathon. We're gonna go into Todd Haynes like in the far future. <laughs> well, now you have time because you're not as distracted with sports. Ugh. It's it's spring too, you know. That's the thing. There's playoffs usually. There, you know, your your football's wrapping up, basketball's wrapping up. You have to like, it's 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 hard. Not this year. Look, as much as I want a bad mind Liverpool, like it's really hard to be missing sports right now. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find you on Twitter? Um, I am Gman Reviews on Twitter. 
Very cool. My site, of course, is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry. Andrew assures me that everything is working, and if it's not, blame him. Also, if uh, there is a platform of choice that my show is not listed, please let me know, and I will put it there, and you can get handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. If you want to drop by and do an episode about one of the decade's best films, or you have feedback about Lewin Davis or any of the films we talked about today, drop a dime in the comments section of the site. You can email ryan at thematinee.ca. Twitter, I am matinee underscore ca or facebook.com slash dark matinee. Mr. Robinson, any final thoughts? I don't see any money in this. <laughs> I certainly don't see any money in this. For Andrew, I'm Ryan. Wash your hands and call your person.